Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 255. Um, we're having a hell of a start to the year here. We've had some amazing guests. It's getting, it's, ver- it's verging on the ridiculous. And we're not, we're not easing up here as I'm joined by, I mean, comedy and straight up podcasting legend, Stephen Merchant. Um, let's have a look at this year so far. We've had it. We've had Eddie Marson, we've had Mark Miller, Adam McKay, the creator of Vice, Step Brothers, Anchorman, all of that, uh, uh, Richard E. Grant, Joel Egerton, Mary J. Blige, J- Joe Cornish, and Lolly Adafope. Um, it's a solid start, isn't it? And it's only getting stronger and stronger as we go on. So, so, so yeah, I was lucky enough. I recorded this at the end of last year. It was just as Stephen was moving into his new house. We talked about him coming on for a while, and he has a new film coming out called Fighting With My Family, which is out this weekend, which I've been delighted. I saw it end of last year, and I've been delighted at the fact that it's getting amazing reviews. It's over 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's the story of WWE wrestler Paige and her family. I mean, you'll hear all about it now, so I won't go into crazy detail, but the cast is just amazing. In fact, I should mention now, if this is your first time li- listening to two distraction pieces, check out previous episodes with cast members of this film, um, Lena Headey, uh, Nick Frost, who else? Obviously, F- Florence Pugh, who's the lead. So, yeah, a lot of the cast previously, and I talked to Florence about a couple of the scenes in this this film so go go back and check that out i also did a film with lane heady about wrestling called walk like a panther so that's worth checking out too um if you're tuning in because you're a wrestling fan previous wrestling guests include chris jericho jack gallagher will osprey um eddie dennis jim smallman of progress and nxt uk um is that everyone i think that's everyone some good people though right so go and check them out um yeah before we get into it i'll mention as ever that we're brought to you by speech development records.com uh, head over there we've just restocked the always s- selling out sunglasses uh the reason i knew they were awesome at the start again there's if you're not f- f- familiar two years ago now i released these sunglasses and i literally couldn't order enough every time i ordered a new batch and they came in they all sold out within a day and i'd order more next time and that that's sell out within in two days but a lot of people are saying why aren't you making them this sounds like a advert it is an advert but a lot of people would genuinely comment on the fact that i kept them them very affordable i kept them at, at 14 quid rather than as you as you will know sunglasses can go up to literally hundreds of pounds it's ridiculous and criminal but the reason I kept them so cheap is because I've never owned a pair of sunglasses that I haven't lost or broken within a year or two. So it was my genius marketing plan of going, well, I'll make these and I'll just sell them to the same people every year. So I'll have these return customers all buying these amazing sunglasses that, um, yeah, anyway, there's that. There's that, speechdevelopmentrecords.com. Oh, I should mention Pod Bible. Um, it's going down a treat. If you're a fan of podcasts, check the Pod Bible out. It's 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 a magazine recommending podcasts, interviewing people. It's the first issue is out now online. It's got interviews with Adam Buxton, with 
Craig Parkinson, and loads of great people. So yeah, head over and check that out at podbiblemag.com or just podbible on all your social medias. There's tons of stuff on the social media that's constantly updating and constant recommendations and engagement and all that kind of thing. So yeah, go and give that a look. I'll also mention Patreon. We've had an amazing re- a, a reaction recently because um, over at patreon.com slash pip, I do poem of the month on the first Monday of the month where I record a spoken word piece for y'all. And I do, I, last w- week I think it was, I launched Distraction Pieces Rewind. And that's where every third Monday of the month I upload, you know, between 20 and 45 minutes, a little bonus podcast where I'm discussing previous podcasts. So starting at the, at the beginning. So the first episode that's up now is discussing uh, the Russell Brand episode, the Zane Lowe episode, the Alan Moore episode, the DJ Yoda episode, and the Sage Francis episode. And ne- next month's one will discuss the Simon Singh episode, the Warren Ellis episode, the Jodie Ann Bickley episode, the B. Dolan episode, and the Open Mike Eagle episodes. So, so yeah, tons of good stuff over there. And it's only a dollar a month. I've not upped it. I've kept it that same affordable price. And also you get to see the previews of episodes that that are to come. Because every time I record a new episode, I take a photo and I post it there. I generally keep the previews there. But a little teaser on one that's coming because I'm really excited about it. In Not next week. Next week is Stephen Knight, the writer of Peaky Blinders, Taboo and many other things. And we talk on there about Taboo Season 2. Fear not. I know you all ask me online about that all the time. But um, the week after that is Leon McLeod. And Leon was one of the first three police responders in the London Bridge terror attack. And he got a tattoo of one of my lyrics to commemorate it. So, yeah, I kind of, I offered up, a while ago, I offered up the chance, the the opportunity, not opportunity, the platform to come and talk about it. And... You know, he thought long and hard about it and came and had, had one of the most open and honest and moving ch- chats I've ever had. So I'm excited about that one. And the reason I'm pre-hyping it is it's a really important one. And I know how it can be with podcasts that if it's a big famous name, then you'll you'll, you'll gr- 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 grab it immediately. If not, you might miss it. You might see other things out that week or whatever. But this is a big one. And when I posted about this on my Patreon, it's had the biggest... A reaction the most likes and the most comments of anything i've posted uh, this year because i told a bit of a story on there and kind of explained what's going on so yeah that's going to be a cool one in two weeks and next week i've given next week's away now Stephen knight the writer of peaky blinders taboo and a million other amazing things so yeah that's going to be great but for now let's get on with Stephen merchant godfather of podcasts or podfather as you may say and the director of the amazing fighting with my family which is in cinemas now and i urge you to go and see it if you're a wrestling fan and if you're not a wrestling fan it's it's it transcends the theme i guess so enjoy episode 255 of the distraction pieces podcast Um, and I've started rolling. I'm joined today by Stephen Merchant. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. It's, it's, it's nice 
for you to have me as such as I've I've come to visit you. So it's nice to be here. You're very welcome. Uh, a lot of the regular listeners have almost a game that when I have someone on from the film or TV industry that I'm clearly, you know, a fan of, how long is before I mentioned that I'm an actor now to get myself on their radar. But I thankfully we did that before we started rolling so they can forget that tension. You're very much on my radar now and you're welcome to leave your uh, CV, resume as they call it in LA, um, and any kind of headshot that you might have. Perfect. Do you have a headshot? I, I, I genuinely went and got some some more, because obviously doing music and that, I've had photo shoots for years and when I moved into acting, I went and got some more acting type photos done. Because there are ones that They're I've on received in the past. and all that kind of thing. Well there are some of course in the past, I, for people who aren't familiar there's spotlight which is a sort of industry publication that features every actor of any stature um and they're kind of agent details and then a couple of photographs of them but if you look through them i mean years ago you'd have the sort of standard kind of just the handsome smile and then you'd have perhaps them on the phone yeah yeah. or them wearing a postman's hat (laughs) just to suggest you know their versatility yeah here's the things i could do yeah it's, I mean, yeah. it's, it's It would be you with a beard, you say, with a beard from a different angle. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's hard to dress up the fact that I've got a massive yeah. beard. I'm happy to shave it off, but n- not for shots. No, <laughs> not no, for no, shots. no. Not for here's, photos. Here's what I could do. You could oh, have it digitally removed, like um, uh, the moustache in that Superman film, right? Yes. You, you, yes. you followed yeah, that story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because he had to, to grow the moustache for the... Uh, That's right, the impossible. Superman actor, what's his name, that guy? Um, uh, I've, I've, I've drawn a blank. Handsome well. man, talented man, but he, he plays Superman, they wanted to do reshoots, but he was off shooting Mission Impossible where he'd grown a moustache, so they digitally removed the, the moustache. Yeah, he's got a CGI yeah, lip, a CGI top lip. Wow. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It's amazing, the technology yeah. of it. I, I did a thing, I did a film called uh, Walk Like a Panther, and it was months, and then we had to do some reshoots, um, and I'd cut my hair, um, and they spent ages kind of putting a, w- a wig on and all that. And the other guy, who was my f- partner in the scene, um, he'd cut his hair, and they just, he hadn't t- t- told them, so he just turned up on the day, and they said, <laughs> oh, we'll pop a towel over your head. And I was like, I got in two hours early, so you could weave in my old haircut, make it yeah. all look long. Yeah. And it was like, I could have just had a towel on my head as well. God damn well, that, that goes to the, it. But that goes to the sort of arduousness of making a film or a TV yeah. thing. It's just, there's so much, there's just headaches. You know, people talk about whether it's good or bad, but what they never factor in, whether it's a big movie or small, is just the sheer hard work, the, just the yeah. logistics of getting anything done. The Whether it's, you know, bringing actors back and their hair's yeah. not right, or they're not available, and so you have to sort of shoot around them or pretend they're not in the scene anymore, or or yeah. shoot them six weeks apart from the other person in the scene and try and match the two together. Or it started raining midway through the take. I mean, it's just, it's a nightmare. And people talk about, I always think it's interesting, they talk about how great Pixar movies are, yeah. and undoubtedly they are. But it's animated. You spend years, you can get every single frame right. Exactly. And you just bring in Tom Hanks six years later and he redoes a bit of his voice work. Yeah. Nothing changes. It, it was gr- great, the realisation. I can't remember who... Who it was? I think it might have been Garth Jennings who highlighted it as told me that the reason things like Shrek and all these other things often have a mini Christmas one and stuff like that is because it takes them ten years to build the world and character. Right, it's kind of a waste to just make the film. Sure, it's of like course. well we've built it now. Now yeah. it's easy. Now we just go. Here we go. Here they are at Christmas. Here they are at Here's Easter. Halloween. Yeah, you can do every holiday. Absolutely. <laughs> it's all that build up. So, how have you found it? Kind of being in the in 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 the proper Hollywood. F- film industry it's an interesting one because 
I mean, obviously, I'm sure we'll talk about the, the office and podcasting itself, but you came up with Ricky, and I'm a, a big f- fan of Ricky, but Ricky's success has come mainly from doing Ricky stuff. Mm. And it feels like you've kind of stepped away and done a variety of stuff from from Logan to 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 fighting with the fat uh, my f- family, which yeah. is, is one of the things we're going to talk about a lot. How's that been to kind of go, I don't want to just be the guy from the office doing stuff or doing well, Stephen I, Merchant stuff. To me, such. it's sort of, I, I've always been interested. I've always been a fan. I mean, you, you're just, you can see my DVD and film collection yeah, there. Yeah. And I, that's a small fraction of it. And I've always been a fan of movies and TV. And yeah. so when the opportunities arise to just be a hired hand in yeah. some project, whether it's someone I know or someone I've never worked with who calls me and asks me to do something, I just, it's exciting to me to watch the mechanics of it at work and see yeah. how they operate and see how they direct or write or, Completely. and I'm just, it's, I, I, you know, and I feel like I'm learning from that. And I just, you know, the, the, the downside of that is that you don't have control of yeah. the, of the finished product. So you are sort of, you know, you're left just to sort of see, to see how it turns out. You're just a cog in, in the machine. Yeah. But the, but the upside of it is that you, you have less of the responsibility, but you get to sort of dip into that world, you know, and, and see, how they function and and it's sort of pleasurable to to do that and you know you end up i don't know in some odd location in the middle of nowhere and yeah. i mean i just did a film with uh just a, a couple of scenes for this film that taika watiti has directed yeah, who jojo, made jojo, R- jojo rabbit which is about and for those that don't know taika obviously you know he worked a lot with the flight of the concords guys and he yeah. did uh what we do in the shadows which Love is just hilarious and then, and then Thor. Thor, Thor Ragnarok was... And this is a very dark, black, satirical comedy in the vein, I suppose, of Doctor Strangelove or, or, or Life of Brian, in which a young boy um, joins the Nazi youth in wartime Germany. And, yeah. and Taika is his imaginary friend who also happens to essentially be Hitler. Yeah. And it sounds wow. kind of dark and really twisted, and yet and it's very funny and very satirical. And, and But to go, to go to Prague and play a... Gestapo officer for a wow. couple of weeks with yeah, him yeah, and yeah. opposite Sam Rockwell. I mean, it's sort of, it's a delight. I don't know how the film will turn out. I don't know what the tone of it ultimately will be. That's not my it's, it's re- kind of uh, responsibility. To, to have that disconnect from the finished product, right. I guess, as well. Yeah. You know, it, it's good to have the variation, I guess. There's going to be projects that you want complete control of, but yeah. particularly with, with someone like Taika, who's just been amazing on everything he's, yeah. he's done so far, the, the casting director of that is someone I've had some really good auditions with. And as soon as I saw he was doing that, I was hassling him constantly. Because, <laughs> again, the cast as well. Sam Rockwell, I think, is going to be remembered as a genuine great. I think he's Absolutely. so underrated at the moment. Yeah. He's everything... I've seen him in uh, arguably bad films be absolutely amazing. Absolutely. And be the thing that makes it fantastic. So yeah. there's a Sam Rockwell, Scarlett Johansson, and just just this amazing cast of yeah of great people, and with with Tiger at the with Tiger at the helm, it's 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 at the very least it's going to be interesting. Yeah, it's going to yeah. be a worth a worth a watch just to see what the hell it turns out like. Yeah, and just the the intrigue of a project, mm. I like that because you always I wonder when I think in Hollywood there's always that risk of at what point does freedom go too far and i'll ex- explain it if someone's been really pr- prolific there's every every filmmaker has got it they're prolific and then there's that point where you realize someone should probably have said 
maybe ease off on right. that, or maybe can't yes. you know do I mean? another draft of the script before you start filming it. <laughs> exactly, and yeah. and I'm wondering that with Taika because so far, genuinely, everything he's done from the boy to or, or yeah. sh- sh- shark and um, shark versus uh, eagle versus shark. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. and um, and 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 hunt for the wilderness people. All of these things have all been amazing. Yeah. So I'm constantly like, at some point, there's going to be the one where they go. Right, now we need some studio input. But there's a man who's also <laughs> just sort of dancing to his own tune, even when he's making Thor. It just that's seems like exciting. he just, he really is following his own muse and that's and that's really uh, brave and audacious oh. and it's very hard to do it once you get within the Hollywood machinery. Even more so in the Marvel machinery, right? Absolutely. Because they all have to tick each other's boxes and reference other films and all that. Yeah. It's so rare that you'll get that freedom and going in and, and watching Ragnarok, I was just like, this is amazing. This is a Taika Waititi film. This isn't a Marvel film. Well, anyway, there ends our celebration of the work of Taika Waititi. And thank you so much for joining me today um, to talk about it. But, um, so how did fighting with my family come along? And I need to warn you, I've, I've, I've made notes not to make the mistake, but I know I will. At some point, I might refer to it as Walk Like a Panther, which is right. just because I was in a wrestling film with Lena Headey last year oh. called Walk Like a Panther. Also about wrestling. Also about wrestling. Right. Also a British wrestling film, Underdog. Right. So it's... It's bound to be it's confusing. It's confusing in my head. Yes. But they are completely different. I've seen Fighting with My Family. It blew me away. It felt like it was handmade for me because I'm a wrestling fan. I know the Knight family a bit. I've had Lena, Florence and Nick all on the podcast, oh, all kind of friends. So it's kind of, there was, I went in with a kind of fear of that, right? This is almost too made for me. So it's <laughs> going to be a let, do you know what I mean? There's, good, there's, yes, there's a good yes, risk yes. that it's not going to work, but I loved it. I thought it really, it told that story of the, it told the classic kind of underdog story, but under the microscope of the ludicrousness of the, of the WWE and yeah. that huge world, but it's all a true story. So it kind of gave it all that root, despite it, it's one of the things I wanted to ask, I guess, was the writing of it kind of fr- freeing in the fact that you had r- real life to fall back on? Because a right. lot of stuff in that script, if it was fiction, someone would go, you maybe tone that down a bit. That seems a bit too... But there's also stuff the in it which you might, as a viewer, think I have also made up, which isn't. But just to rewind for a second, because I don't know how much your listeners are are aware of what the what the movie is or what yes. it's about. I know you have a lot of wrestling fans who are, you know, who are yeah, listeners yeah, yeah. as well, but... I have never been a wrestling fan. I yeah. am now, having done the movie. Yeah. But um, it was not something I ever followed e- either back in the in the Big Daddy, you know, Sunday, Saturday yeah. afternoon wrestling days. My grandfather used to watch it. I was, didn't understand why. Yeah. I, even as a kid, I, did, I just didn't understand what was going on. I what didn't. I never doing? watched it. <laughs> yeah. I never watched it, you know, in, in the glory days of WWE, or not that they, perhaps they still are. Um, but what interested me was I, I so I, you know, I years ago, did this film, The Tooth Fairy, you're welcome, Yes, Um, with The Rock. And uh, the reason I wanted to do that, going back to what we were talking about earlier, is I was, at the time, I had seen The Rock in a couple of other movies, and I just thought, this guy is brilliant. I just thought, his charisma, his charm, he had this kind of old-school Hollywood um, essence about him that was so endearing and so appealing, and he was sort of self-mocking, and he was. I just thought, this guy's electric. And they asked me, would you do this film? I was like, I'm in, I'm 100% in. Because I just, it was like I wanted to buy shares in this guy. I just knew <laughs> yeah. he was going to 
just it blow up. Not that he wasn't already big, but just I knew I could see there was this thing. I was so excited to work with him, and he was a joy to work with. And so we've stayed in touch ever since. And then bizarrely, I get this call via his people that um, he had been in England shooting a movie, and he had sat there and he was watching Channel Four, which to me is an amazing <laughs> idea. Anyway, just The Rock is sat in. Presumably, you know, a premiere in, yeah, you know, yeah. he's got a celebrity discount from Lenny Henry. He sat there, he's, he's eating, he's eating his little free shortbread. He's flipping through the channels and he's, you know, he's, he, lo- he never misses uh, Hollyoaks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's ended. And this Channel 4 documentary comes on about this family of wrestlers from Norwich, the yeah. Knight family, which was a Channel 4 documentary uh, a couple of years ago. And The Rock saw it and being from a wrestling family himself was very engaged. Yeah. And he ended up sort of reaching out to them. And so when, they auditioned for the WWE and, and, uh, I should just explain. So the family all wrestle, mum, yeah. dad, and three kids, but, and the two of the teenage kids got the chance to audition for the WWE, but only the daughter got signed and she yeah. subsequently became Paige. Um, and he's very successful over there. But, and so he ended up sort of becoming tangentially involved in her life in the WWE yeah, and, yeah. and so just sort of thought it was an interesting, uh, story yeah. to make a film of, but the only person I guess he knew from England before he started working with Jason Statham was me, and yeah. so um, they sort of talked to me about making it into a film, and I went to meet the Knight family, and and I just thought there was a lot more to the story that the documentary hadn't explored yeah. about. To me, which was as interesting as anything, is yes, you have this girl who gets signed and she has to go through the machinery of the WWE in America alone at the age of 18. But also what happens to that brother who gets left behind, yeah. which to me seemed to particularly... English turn of the story, you know. I feel like English stuff. We we often are more willing to embrace stories of failure, yeah, and yeah. how you overcome failure in a way that perhaps Americans are, which are a lot more Americans, a lot more about kind of exceptionalism and triumph. Yeah. And we are also willing to sort of say, well, actually, some people get left behind, and that's okay too. And this yeah. is how you deal with it. And so, it just seemed like a really tantalizing story for me. And so, um, and what I loved about it was exactly that was kind of highlighting the. Or, or, or choosing, rather than ignoring, choosing to focus on that there will be resentment and yeah. jealousy. There will be great pride and excitement and happiness, but it's two people's dreams and only one of them is, is right. getting... A, right, a, a and it's heartbreaking it. and in many ways. Yeah, that's, that's, that's going to tear people apart a bit. But one of the things that was hard, and, it, and it's interesting, you know, you mentioned it as a, viewing it as a wrestling fan because I was, you know, I, I was sort of ignorant about a lot of uh, both wrestling history yeah. and 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 also the mechanics of yeah. wrestling and and how the audience interact with the wrestling yeah. and so on all of which i had to learn and research like you would any other subject you know whether i was writing about the mafia or whatever just I've, I've not sp- to compare the wwe with the I've, mafia i've but spotted an nxt box set in your there you are so, and I, sort of research has been but done. what you realize is it's like trying to catch up on i don't know 30 years of Batman comics or 30 yeah. years of EastEnders. You just eat there's, there's It's an overwhelming amount of information. And, yeah. and, and obviously I was also trying to make it not just for the wrestling fan, but for the non-wrestling fan. And it's for the non-wrestling course. fan, it's very complicated to understand all the elements that you need to understand, yeah. not just the levels of reality within the, the, the sport, the entertainment itself, but also in terms of the WWE, you know, how you're selected, 
the training process, how you yeah. move from the sort of development stage into the main roster. That it's just it's, and it's there's a lot of information yeah, which, yeah, as a wrestling yeah, yeah. fan, you know automatically, but which you have to impart Completely. to the non wrestling viewer. That's really complicated. It's why it makes it perfect for it to be made by someone who wasn't initially a wrestling fan. Because if it was made only by a wrestling fan, then there'd be so much that so much of that shorthand that right. you assume everyone knows that they they don't. And I think also. Because it's always a scary thing. When a sport is in a film, how's it going to come across? Is it going to be filmed well? Is it going to look realistic? But the beauty of this, it's the perfect story for that because it's it's about someone in the, the kind of a developmental leagues. So they're training and they're learning. It doesn't have to be this, right. this rocky type, here's our big, amazing wrestling match, high-flying, all this, with right. actors rather than wrestlers. <laughs> it's, it's about them learning and developing. So Florence and all of these people could... Well, perfect for that because they're learning it there. Learning That's what it. they're doing. Yeah. So it kind of it sits perfectly. Well, I, as a wrestling fan, do you? What is your engagement with the the sort of fiction of it? I love it. My argument, like anytime I mention being a fan online, you'll have someone tweet going like, "You know, it's all fake, don't you?" My response is always, "Dude, you should check films out. They're amazing. <laughs> yes. It's all fake. Yes. It's all made up, right. but they're so good." There's, and yes. it's exactly that. It's 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 a it's a theatre. It's a well, pantomime. it is a theatre, and I think once. I, someone said to me, which I used the line in the film, and I'm, uh, one of the wrestlers said to me, it's like soap opera in spandex. Mm. And once I got that, once I understood that, yeah. it all fell into place. But what was interesting is how complicated that is for a movie because it's it's not a sport movie. In Re- in Rocky, when you knock out Apollo Creed, yeah. you know what that means. You understand the rules, <laughs> yeah. right? That's a real punch that, that knocks someone's jaw out. And and they're down, and you've won, and you're a heavyweight champion in the world. Yeah. In wrestling, when you win, the victory may be uh, massaged and manipulated and untruthful, but the sense of victory for the individual, for that person who has dedicated their life to that sport and that entertainment, who yeah. has worked their way up from tiny clubs all the way to that to twenty thousand, thirty thousand people, when they have that moment, albeit fake success, yeah. it's everything. It's yeah. huge. It's like. You've won the Olympics, and, so and the it's crowd a very is the and same. the crowd reaction is the same, and yeah. so it's so and so to try and explain to the viewer and try and lead them on that journey that when this girl climbs this ladder to success, and yes, elements of it are artificial in terms of the 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 sport of it, if you like, yeah. the sense of accomplishment and triumph is as real as it would be for Rocky, yeah. and she talked to me herself, Paige, about that sense of the the, the adrenaline and the. And the, just the feeling when she kind of ultimately won the title was yeah. overwhelming. And yeah. so so that's the tricky thing, is you're trying to take this viewer on this journey where you're saying, we all know this it's is not entirely... But yeah, yeah. But, but believe me, it's as, is as important to her as it is anything else. And you realise you're sort of somewhere between Rocky and A Star Is Born. Because yeah. it's kind of a... It's a sort of entertainment story as well. Oh, completely it be that. And, and, and that's what I think you did great was telling it or, or showing that there's still that same journey to get that opportunity. It's right. decided that she's going to win or whatever, right. but they didn't just decide that, pick that out of a hat. She's right. had to do stuff to, to earn that. So kind of that is where she's got the win. The win right. is still the win. It's still, she's been told, oh, you're going to be the, the winner or the champion, or you're going to get signed or whatever else. So it's right. having that whole journey of almost, yeah, it's almost a business film almost a star is born type yeah i'm gonna do my best and then g- 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 get the contract and get that's the it big you deal. get your chance on on broadway to finally yeah. take the lead in a yeah. west end show or whatever. yeah, yeah. So, 
so how was it working um, in both worlds, I guess? Because the first, a, a lot of it is with the Knight family and it's, it's Lena Headey and Nick Frost and, and they, they play the Knights amazingly. And again, I liked how you made it very, it's not kind of your, oh, these are the good guy underdogs. It's like, well, it was in prison for yeah. some some stuff and yeah. these are they're, they're, they're a, a rough a, a rough a lovably rough family but they're rough but, around the edges but they're a rough around the edges Absolutely. family and you didn't smooth off any of the, those edges which it would have been easy to do particularly as obviously it's it's the family story so there's right. going to be some involvement or investment so i thought that was great to get the kind of yeah the roughness there's a the, bit of edge to them yeah yeah completely well i think um when i watched that documentary which the rock had sent to me i I was thinking, if I'm honest, I was thinking slightly, oh, wrestling. Yeah. And I watched it, and 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 I and initially you think you're going to laugh at them because they do this yeah. this eccentric sport in many ways, and and particularly the British wrestling at yeah. times can seem to the outsider very odd and 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 sort of eccentric. But within a few minutes on the doc, in the documentary, I was completely won over to them as a family who have this dream, they love this thing. They talk about it like it's a religion. They talk yeah. about how, you know, the alcoholism and the darkness that they've had in their lives was sort of, you know, was washed away by wrestling. It's it's their religion and, and it saved them in many ways. And so what was so important to me in the film was to not mock them or wrestling. Yeah. You, you can find the funny things around that world, but I didn't want this to be at, at wrestling's expense or it's yeah. not a joke I don't treat because they take it seriously and so I yeah. have to take it seriously and in the same way as Billy Elliot I don't care for ballet but his love of ballet is not important yeah. it's his love of anything which is what you're rooting for you want him to succeed because it's important to him Completely. and the same with the family they, they, it's so important to them and that's what I wanted to get behind and so uh, but, but like I said I didn't want to take off all the dark edges but at the same time you know there's almost an entire movie in just their their lives in the past, you know, yeah. before they even had kids of just, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, Rick is uh, the father's sort of life before and his time yeah. in prison. And there's a moment in the documentary, which I've tried to put in the film as well, which I just thought summed it up where he's being interviewed it's and he says something perfect. like, um, I, uh, yeah, I was inside uh, in and out of prison about uh, three or four times before the age of 25. And his wife leans in mainly violence. And, it's amazing. And that sort, but that kind of, you, that acceptance of it and that just, well, this is the world we are and this yeah. is who we are and this is what we've come from and sort of almost no shame in that. I really related to. I just thought, I felt like I'd grown up with people who had that same attitude. Everyone's made mistakes. Everyone has yeah. good and bad in them and darkness and light and, and sort of to try and keep some of that in uh, seemed important. It must have been a great project to get <coughs> put onto because that scene in particular in, in the film, I loved it. I cracked up and it felt so... St- Stephen Merchant. It felt like the style right. of writing of The Office and all right. these kind of things. It's a bit awkward and then at the end, And then at the end, it has the original <laughs> clip. And it's like, it's you didn't same. even have to write that. You, right. you didn't even have to come up with that. It was just, here it is. Well, that scene who it, they when are. we were having dinner was, uh, so I briefly appear as the uh, as the parents of uh, of their young son, Zach's uh, wife. Yeah. And, and, and they were telling me that when they first met them, that, that family were a little bit more sort of middle class. And... Yeah when they arrive to meet the knights, you know, and the knights are kind of, you know, shocks of red hair and mohawks and tattoos and yeah. they're wrestlers. And this sort of middle-class family had to come in and meet them. And, and uh, you know, the clash of cultures was was ready-made for some humour. And yeah. But again, I was sort of, it was like a way of, again, taking the viewer who isn't a wrestling fan into that world and sort yeah. of asking the questions that we all think, you know, it's all fake. Yeah. You know, why, why how do you get into it? You just, it's... 
because it is a it, it, it's a strange strange passion to to drive around you know parts of Norwich and throw your family around. Yeah, how 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 nerve wracking was it then to go over and film a lot of the America stuff and I you know at the performance center and things like that and I went had 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 Florence on she spoke of how the uh, of how the big match kind yeah. of went and it was essentially the rock went out at a wrestling event and said are you fans all all right to stay around for That's a bit right. again it's such a beautiful because you assume big hollywood film or this it's going to it's like no it's kind of on a favor which is how the wrestling industry has That's worked exactly for so how long. it was i mean it was not an expensive film they you know and 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 so it was we you know we were trying to make this sort of this relatively low budget british film but yeah. give it some of that um hollywood big sheen and yeah. And so, yeah, the WWE let us film at this, uh, there was a, a Monday Night Raw yeah. t- a telecast at the Staples Center in LA, 20,000 real life wrestling fans. They had just watched watched several hours of wrestling yeah. live on TV. They were all ready to go home. Suddenly The Rock comes out, who of course for wrestling fans, yeah. is, you know, or for many of them is like Elvis returning. Yeah, completely. They go insane. But they'd only given us a window of an hour to shoot uh, this big yeah. match with, with Florence Pew playing Paige. Yeah. Um, and so I said to The Rock, please... And Selena Vega playing AJ That's Lee, right. wasn't it? Who's, who's, who's a wrestler herself. That's right. Yeah. And I said to The Rock, please don't get carried away on the mic because we don't have a lot of time. Just go out there, explain what's going on, get going. But of course, you give Dwayne a mic in front of a wrestling crowd, he's going to do 20 minutes. Yeah, of course. And so the clock's ticking and, and I've got no way of communicating. Minutes. That's it. I can't communicate with him because he stood in the ring and he's... And I'm like, get on with it, dude. Yeah. And... Um, Eventually, the music drops, and he's explained what's happened. And then, you know, Florence's page comes out, but they're playing her theme tune. And I think the wrestling—I guess the wrestling fans kind of understood it wasn't going to be the real woman. But once she got in the ring, they were kind of behind her. But obviously, she can't do a lot of the more yeah. ambitious moves, which her double had to do for her. And so, at that point, the wrestling fans are like, "What?" What is going on? And so at times they were turning against her, much like they would a real wrestler yeah, who couldn't do yeah. the the thing they were trying to do, right? So so Florence was sort of having to contend with the whims of the crowd, like any wrestler. And she's yeah. never done it before. She's done a couple of months training. She's it's the fifth day of filming on the movie. Oh wow! We're in LA, that early. and she's walked out in front of twenty thousand wrestling fans to pretend to be a wrestler. I mean, it was it was insane. And she just has. Balls of steel. I mean, it yeah. was just incredible to watch her. She was so gung ho, and, and yeah, I mean, she's incredible. She's absolutely. She's a, a superstar in 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 the making. But that must have been intense on your part as well to know. I mean, any film, the scariest part is the time restrictions. Have yes, can you get it all in the day? Are you having to move scenes to the next day? To have a scene that you've not got a chance to move anywhere at any point. You, There's no reason you've got here. to get it. That's this it. is what this is how it happens. How was that from your side of things? Because you, you're still, you know, relatively new to yeah to be in in charge. In well, that certainly way. something on that scale yeah. is new to me. And um, I guess you know that we were lucky that the the, the TV WWE TV crew stayed behind. So yeah. there's you know the people that would cover a match normally were working with us as well as well as our own cameras. Brilliant. So those guys just you know can shoot this stuff in their sleep, which yeah, was a godsend. Yeah. And so we made the decision early on that we would shoot it you know, as you pretty much would a, a wrestling match. Yeah. And so it would feel like what you were watching on TV. Yeah. But of course, we were also slightly trying to replicate a real match, which had occurred some years before, yeah. but also kind of add a bit of our own sort of, you know, Hollywood magic to it. And we had to change a few things here and there. And the early hope had been to use the real AJ, but then AJ's no longer with 
yeah. WWE, so yeah. that became a complication. So we had to have someone who did, as you say, who yeah. did an amazing job replacing her. But so it was just so many mechanics. And then we had to sort of take Florence off to kind of have a breather and then bring on a double to kind of do these bigger drops and flips and whatever else. And, and all while trying to keep a crowd relatively try, And then the crowd, of course, start to... Because the crowd are also not familiar with filming. So they're thinking... Why are we seeing this again? We just saw yeah. this match once. Yeah. Now you're doing it again. We did it. So we managed to get, I think, four times we managed to do the match from different angles. And and then the crowd by that point were sort of getting impatient and a lot of them started to leave, you know. Yeah. So it was it was terrifying. And of course, you it's so hard, you know, you, it's very hard to communicate with the actors in a ring without yeah. being there in the ring with them. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah, yeah. it was tough. It was brutal. Yeah. The whole movie was brutal like that. It was just, it was just a very hard film to to do because filming wrestling is really tough it's dangerous and and like any kind of action you know it's really just really hard to shoot as soon as you kind of get to know the world a little bit you kind of uh, realize or or at least grow a new appreciation of 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 what they're they're doing i had had chris jericho on the podcast and he was saying how the first time he got a film role he was blown away because he did his lines and then he was like, oh, I can have another go. Right, oh, we can course. do this numerous times. He's like, he's been doing this for years. He's got that one moment. He goes out job. there and nails it, or he doesn't. That's that's, that's kind of it. So he was then on a film set, and they're like, yeah, we're going to have a, a break now and come back and do some more on this scene later. Yeah. And he's like, I've learned today's, I've learned today's thing. I'm, <laughs> I'm here yeah. to do it. Yeah, of course. And then go. So. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting as well, because obviously, you know, one of the things I was mindful of and concerned about was, I knew I was going to have to take liberties with the story. And I also knew I was going to have to conflate time and, you know, and there are lots of, you know, and I know that there's a large portion of wrestling fans who are very scrupulous about Mm -hmm. the way it's portrayed and the liberties people take and and if something is accurate. Oh, we saw that with Walk Like a Panther. Right. (laughs) But, and it's interesting because, you know, when I was talking to Paige and getting all of her sort of life story and her teaching, taking me through it, you know, you're talking about a, a, probably a five-year period, which you're trying to compress into two years. And, and you know, she began at FCW, yeah. which then became NXT. Yep. They moved from one training center to another training center. She had multiple trainers, including Dusty Rhodes and a number of other people. Mm-hmm. She had various rivalries in the ring and outside the ring and various girls uh, who came through who were rejected or who went on to success and there was so, you know, it's a huge yeah. catalogue of characters and personalities, some of whom are known to the audience, some yeah. of whom are backstage people. And I just realised there's no way I can juggle all of this stuff. I just can't Completely. get all this yeah. stuff. I mean, even to explain to an audience that it starts as FCW and changes to NXT, I mean, people are just going to be like, what are you talking about? And then right? explaining what NXT is anyway. Explaining what NXT is, explaining yeah. how long that takes, to, yeah. how long that process is. And so I just had to kind of concertina a lot of that stuff down and I and I had to reduce, you know, I sort of, so I ended up fictionalizing certain parts. Like I didn't, I tried to make one trainer played by Vince Vaughn yeah. who tried to, and I tried to incorporate aspects of the various people she'd been tutored by and that she told me about. And similarly with the other girls that she trains opposite, you know, and sort of make them uh, a conflation of different people because I just couldn't, it was too unwieldy yeah. to have all these other people. I mean, even to the point that the logo, WWE logo changed yeah. in the time that she was there. <laughs> and so it's like, what, am I going to have two different logos in the movie? Like, it's just, it's, it's a so nightmare, confusing. you know. So um, so I am conscious of, of, and I hope that the wrestling fans who watch it, who are thinking, well, hang on, that's not quite right, or that's not quite right. It's sort of, 
believe me, the spirit of the story is 100% yeah. right. I did my research. None of those decisions are taken through ignorance. Yeah. They're all taken through just trying to tell the story as clearly as, as I can, it, really. It, it genuinely all comes across. And I was speaking to a mate of mine who's, who's, who's my mate I talk to wrestling, about wrestling with. I've, not many people of my age are into wrestling, so I've got my little, have a little text. And I came out and I texted him immediately to go, it's all right. It's really good. It's, oh, good, it's, good, it, good, it, good. It works. I was relieved. He was relieved because it is that kind of, there is that pressure as a wrestling fan. But yeah, as I said, it's impossible to, to get everything in. Right. There's, you've got to be selective. It's the same with every, anything that comes out. There was off, the, there was some, I had Boots Riley and Spike Lee both on the podcast at yeah. separate times and Boots had issues with Black Klansman. That's right. Because it didn't right. tell the full story of this. But I could see Boots' point of view, but I could also see that it's not a five-hour bar pick. Right, it's it's, it's it. a section of time. It's going, here's the bit that we're focusing on. Yeah. And everything else gets kind of pushed aside. That's so, it. Yeah. You just have to make big choices. I mean, there were there were just other elements of the story that I wanted to get into and I just didn't have the time and, and we ended up cutting out or was in early drafts of the script. But then some of the more unlikely things in the movie, like there's a moment where The Rock tells Paige that she's going to go on yeah. Monday Night Raw, uh, that happened. Yeah, he, yeah. he really did. He was the one to tell her. Yeah. And so people watched it like, there's no way The Rock told Yes, he yeah, did. Yeah, that's how you know? it happened. Um, and, so, um, and so, you know, it, you almost you can't win in a way. You just hope that people are taking it in good faith and, and are just yeah. swept along by the story. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of big choices, Logan was... It came about as... At that point, there'd been no real superhero films that were dark and grown up. And like there'd been Deadpool, which was comedy dark, but mm. Logan came about as a huge choice for the superhero, which the comic book films have got huge, but they've got huge on the basis of their for every every age. Yes, and 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 Logan came about as a dark, m- moody thing, and your first kind of dramatic role as yeah. as such, or, or purely. Dr- a dramatic role. How was that to be part of, to get brought on board and then to see everyone went crazy for it? You know, it worked. Yes. Well, I uh, auditioned like a lot of other people. I mean, I think the truth, if the truth be told for those that have seen it, you know, I play a giant six foot seven pale faced mutant. And I'd be honest, there's not a lot of people, actors working who are who can tick so many boxes yeah. even without prosthetics and makeup? If, so I if, think I had a, I I had a lead just by being freakishly if, tall and pale. If someone had simply heard the word the uh, uh, the Ogmeister or Ogmonster, <laughs> exactly, then, then they would have drawn that exactly. They exactly, so they'd have drawn of, that already. So yeah. I think that that was already a good that was already a, a, a shoe in. But so I went and I did some of those slightly nerve wracking auditions. But because uh, anything superhero related is so secretive, mm. I didn't know what it was. I was. I just knew it was a superhero thing, but it didn't tell me who the character was or what uh, the movie was. So obviously oh, you're working in the dark a lot. Oh, when I went and saw Thor Ragnarok, I suddenly saw some lines I'd audition for. And I, I, I didn't know at all. It was literally, I was like, amazing. This That's is it. brilliant. This yeah. is fantastic. I can't believe I auditioned for that. There I had are. that excitement. You know, I, I didn't know to be excited at the time. I was like, oh, it's a thing. No, well, we'll and then I meant to meet. Well, I meant I went to meet uh, James Mangold, the director, and and he's you know he's a ball of energy, and he kind of came in, and he's and he's sort of uh, you know take your glasses off, stand up, move over here, grab this, and I'm just sort of just doing this dance with him, and just kind of what is going on, and 
again, but with no context, like I don't really know what's going on in the scenes. Yeah. And um, so I just, it was like a, he was like a whirling dervish of energy. And then I'm kind of thrown back out onto the street and I'm thinking, well, I guess that's, that has happened. Yeah. And then you go back to your life and then they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to start shooting in New Orleans. Come down. You're like, what? And so um, then my great anxiety was that I had to shave my head, yeah. <laughs> which I was almost going to turn it down because I was like, do, do I want to shave my head? What if it doesn't grow back? What if I look weird? <laughs> Um, and then so they'd send me, and I thought sort of some nice ladies with cups of tea would kind of talk me through it, like someone getting a, you know, getting a leg amputated. Yeah, yeah. And instead it's just a kind of some special effects guys with some polythene bags that they wrap around you and then just shave your head with clippers. Amazing. It was very brutal. And, um, and then, you know, this is, this is the terrible thing is that you're in this amazing privileged position. You're there to shoot this film. You're working with incredibly talented people, Hugh and everyone else. And, you're stuck in New Orleans in the height of summer and then later Natchez, Mississippi, a tiny little town in Mississippi. Yeah. And I was going out of my mind. I was going spare. Yeah. I I didn't know, I wasn't being used because they just keep you hanging around. Yeah. And I, me and Richard E. Grant, we were stuck in this little town just like divas, just complaining. Why, when are we going to be used? Why can't we go home? I mean, we were unbearable. And Hugh Jackman is, you know, the nicest, most gracious man yeah. who's ever lived. He works out you know, at 4 a.m. so he can be ready on sex at 6. Yeah. And we're like stuck in a hotel going, when's our call time? <laughs> and I mean, it was, but, so that's the thing about <laughs> filming is it's sort of, whatever ends up on the screen, as an actor, you have no sense of it. So you're just, all you're thinking is, I, I, why am I still here? Yeah. Why can't I go home now? Yeah. It's terrible how quickly you acclimatise to something and become insufferable. It's amazing when you're in that world, but it's a beautiful juxtaposition there because... There's the diva side of, of, right. of when you're in that moment. But equally, someone who's had your success and done a lot of the things you do, it's beautiful to hear that you're going in for auditions, for yeah, roles oh, yeah. that aren't just the typical, oh, we'll give this to Stephen Merchant, or your agent can go, Stephen would like this, and you know it's a fit. You're pushing yourself out there to go, well, well this isn't necessarily the obvious one for me. Right. If you've seen me and stuff before, you might not think, but I want it and I can do it. So that's exciting to hear that kind of, drive to go out there and push yourself out of your comfort zone albeit when you're out of your comfort zone you're going to moan um. right well that's the terrible thing i mean actually ironically <laughs> the actual moments when we were filming i never complain i'm i'm I, it was simply because just to give it a little bit more context they have this thing called rain cover where yeah it so they're shooting outdoors but should it rain then they need to move indoors to shoot something because they have to keep filming right yeah, yeah so yeah. they so they kept me there on the off chance that it rained and then, then we could move indoors to shoot a scene with me yeah but the problem was it was natchez mississippi in the height of summer so the rain showers are 10 seconds long yeah and my makeup job took four hours so there's no <laughs> scenario in which you're ever going to need me because how are you ever it's never going to happen so and so natchez there's nothing there yeah and it's also the hotel is is was not you know there's just one hotel in this tiny yeah, town and there's no room service and i know that sounds like oh mr big shot where's the room service but Mate. how am i supposed to eat you know i need Mate, to eat something and so and everyone's so everyone's off filming and i'm just stuck in this hotel and i i, I, I have nothing to do and so i'm just going crazy and part of what i'd occupy my time with was i was rewriting fighting with my family and i constructed this sort of writing desk sort of i i kind of I got a couple of drawers out and I've turned them up and I would sort of prop them on an ironing board so that I could put an iPad to create a screen that was, 
you know, high enough because yeah, yeah. I'm six foot seven and I would sit in a yeah. chair and I would put multiple cushions on the chair and I would construct this kind of weird <laughs> lab. I mean, God knows what the, 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 you know, room service people or the, not the room service, but you know, the maids and stuff that would come yeah. in to clean. So I'd do that for a little bit and then, I remember, and then Richard E. Grant came along and so we were both stuck there and we were there for two and a half weeks. We did not shoot a frame of film. Wow. So we're just, now, we've never met before, we're just living together, basically. Because like, everyone's off filming so we never see anyone. So we're just living our lives. And so I remember there was a pub quiz. They, they had this pub quiz one night in the local bar. Very excited because I'm like something to do. Yeah. So Richard and I go to this bar and um, we join, the, we, we, we're a team and we get we become joint first. This is the standard of pub quizzery in Natchez, Mississippi, that there are teams of 10 people. Me and Richard on our own, we're joint first. There's a tiebreaker question. The tiebreaker question is how many people survived the sinking of the Titanic? Richard is so angry that we're in Natchez and we've been there for so long, as am I. He doesn't even discuss that answer with me. He just writes a number on a piece of paper, hands it in. It's incorrect. We lose the quiz. Didn't oh, speak wow. to him for three days. <laughs> I was furious with him. We were like a married couple. It was it was crazy. I love it. It's genuinely like it's, again. It is those things. It's 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 the fine lines, isn't it? Because people can say, "Oh, you, you're making films. You, you don't this know. You how you're living, mate." I I did a film at the end of last year in 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 Melo in France, which is this small town, and literally similar. There's one hotel. I checked in, and he's like, here's your room key. Dinner's at, at seven. And I'm like, yeah. Seven till? He's like, no, we serve dinner at seven. Sure. It's like, uh, and every time I went down, there wasn't a menu. There was just, he serves dinner at That's seven. Right. Yeah. You get what he wants you to have at seven. If you don't want it, don't eat. But the shops in Mellow are only open, I think, for three hours in the middle of the day. Yeah. So you'd better have gone in them three hours. Well, that was the same. Something. So we then moved from Natchez. We weren't used. We then moved to New Mexico, where we were also not used for another two weeks. And the same thing there. We were in this weird lodge of a hotel in the middle of nowhere. Um, and it was the same thing. What do you want? It was you, the night before. You'd have to decide what you wanted for dinner <laughs> the following night. And there'd be two choices, you know, fish or meat. But it would be, it'd be like bison or yeah, something. Yeah. It'd be like, do I want bison at 6 p.m.? tomorrow night yeah. i guess yeah <laughs> so and the thing is you know again i'm i'm exaggerating i mean we we got through but it's just funny how it was like i was saying before about weather and all these things that the, the, the mechanics of making a film the psychology of the energy the the if you're directing you're just not getting enough sleep and you're constantly yeah. being pressured i heard it just directing is like they say it's like being chased down a hill by a boulder. Yeah. There's this boulder yeah, behind yeah, you and you yeah, just yeah. got to keep running so it doesn't crush you. And that, But as an actor, there's that famous saying, you know, hurry up and wait. Yeah. And that's what it's like. It's like, we've got to get you in, we've got to get you in. Don't do anything for eight hours. Yeah. Go home again. Yeah. <laughs> you know? and, and it takes a certain psychology just to sort of get through that weirdly. I mean, it's, I know I sound completely. awful, but it is strange. No, I completely understand it. Like, I, I was lucky on, on, on the TV st- stuff I did early that I'm brand new to this and I'm a massive TV and film nerd so when I'm, I'm waiting around I'm waiting around on a set with Tom Hardy and Stephen Graham and yeah. Tom Holland and all these people so I'm getting I'm learning I'm just there sure but then the first time I had a day where I was just at the hotel it's a world of difference again it's right for, for, for me as long as they've called me to set I'm gonna have a wonderful time I'll sit at monitors and watch and try and learn stuff and try and because I'm trying to fast track my education in yeah. the in the area, so but yeah, if they're if they're like, oh, we're not bringing you in today. I in fact I did a thing in in in, in Leeds. I was, it's when we're shooting. I walked like a panther. I got in the car 
to go to set. And as I was in the car, they said, we don't need you after all. So yeah. in my panic, I looked at what films were on because like, I need to go and see a film because that will kill several hours. And I rushed and saw a, a, a Lady Macbeth, which is Florence Pugh's yes. breakout thing. And it took me ages to get into it because Chris F- Fairbank plays the father in it. He was in the first 20 minutes, half hour. He was the guy I was just in the car with on the way to set. How strange. So, so I couldn't switch into the reality of that because yeah. I'm like, that's just the bloke. I hadn't met him properly. I just been. I just said a quick hello, and I'm like, right. Oh, there's him. So, <laughs> right. Well, and that's the other work. thing as well. As I think people also think, well, you know, you're working. You're with Hugh Jackman, and there's people I'm sure who would die to meet Hugh Jackman. Yeah. But and Hugh is lovely and absolutely adorable. But you know, you can't. I can't just sit there for eight hours just bothering Hugh with questions about <laughs> show business or people he's worked with. So, yeah. like, the man's working. I so. He, so quite, very quickly, he just becomes a work colleague. And, and, and you've already learned about early working out fr- from The Rock. So, exactly. So you know that. I know you about working out. It. So it's not, it's not sort of, it, I even remember when we were on extras with David Bowie. It's sort of, you think, oh my God, it's David Bowie. I can finally learn everything about yeah. Bowie. But when he arrives, what am I going to do? Sit him down and, okay, take me through your Berlin period. What yeah. we, like, you, no, it's, it, there's a, the guy's there to do a job of work. You make a little bit of chit-chat in between takes, but yeah. otherwise you know, you work and then you go home and he's lovely. But what, you know what I mean? This idea that sort of, that there's an inherent excitement and glamour in, in what you do. Um, in the end, th- these are just other people. Yeah, yeah. And the glamour very quickly wears off and some of them are nice and some of them are assholes. And, and it's just like any other working environment yeah. really. And so, um, and so once you, once, once you realize that it is hard to sort of be, to have heroes in the way that you once did, yeah. you know, as when you were younger, because Completely. you just realise, oh, it's just, yeah, they're just, they're just people normal. figuring it's, it out. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking because you lose your heroes a bit, but, but it's motivating because you kind of realise that anything's possible. That's but right. These are just people. That's right. These Absolutely. are just guys doing this. And it makes you go, all right, I will go in, in for that Marvel film or for this or That's that. That's it. It's um, just people figuring it out. It's interesting what you're saying there because the, the fact that you can't just, but Bowie's in, you can't just say, right, Tell me everything. It's one of the two reasons I started a podcast because right. I get to do that. I get yes, to go. Well, sure, here's yeah. an actor. Here's whoever that I'm into. I can ask the questions that if we were in a pub, I wouldn't go. So what was it like when you did this? Right. This is. But the other reason was Gervais Merchant and Pilkington podcast. Yes. So how was that to kind of start something that didn't exist before that? Essentially, because podcasts weren't r- r- really a thing, and it started on your XFM show and Carl. Right gradually became more and more of a, a character. How did XFM come about for you guys? Like, was broadcasting always a goal of yours? Or how did that all come about? And then how was it when it blew up and you have the pressure of, it's just me and my mates chatting, but now millions of people are listening? And Well, my first experience of radio was uh, back in Bristol. And there was a thing that someone used to do where at Radio Bristol, BBC Radio Bristol, um, they would make these little radio programmes for schools and they would send them out to schools. And my friend at school happened to be involved with it and he invited me along. And I was immediately enamoured by radio. Because obviously I had aspirations to perform and to write and to do these things. I'd had that from a young age. But radio was exciting because um, 
you know, I tried to make little short films, but you needed cameras and equipment and editing equipment. It was very complicated, lots of other people. With radio, and, and even more so now, you know, it's a couple of microphones, and in those days, yeah. you know, it was bits of tape, and you could cut and splice tape. Yeah. And it was very exciting, because you could go into a little booth, and, and, you know, an hour later, you had some uh, yeah. thing. And so I was immediately excited by it. When I went to university, I did a radio show there at the University of Warwick. They had a radio station. And so I was, once I came out of university, I was excited to do radio. I thought radio seemed like a great way... I had aspirations to do stand-up and to do comedy and to write movies and all the things I've done, but I thought, well, you need a sort of day job yeah, because you need to pay the bills. And so it seemed like radio was a great way to do that because perhaps a little bit more easy to access maybe, and I've had some experience, and it seemed like maybe if I could get a radio show, I could do two hours of work a day and then go and do other stuff <laughs> yeah, in, the, in, yeah. the, in the downtime. And got this job miraculously at XFM, a London radio station, with Ricky, which is where he met, and we did a radio show there together and then I went off to the BBC and other things happened and the office happened. And then we were invited back to XFM years later to do uh, a radio show um, after the success of the office. And the guy they gave us to press the buttons was Carl Pilkington. We had never met Carl. We didn't know him. He was just there to sort of um, help, you know, produce the show. Yeah. And one day we asked him a question and his answer was suitably Pilkington-esque. And I forget what it was, but there were early on, I remember there were things like, you know, uh, he was telling a story and he said, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, and the people next door who, who had a, uh, they kept a, a horse in the living room. Anyway, and that was not the story. That was just a passing detail. And we we're like, no, 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 Carl, go back to the neighbors you had who had a horse that lived in the living room. And, and so we realized that there was this sort of endless well yeah. of just things that, he didn't seem to find eccentric or interesting or weird. They were just his life. Yeah. Um, and so he very quickly became the centerpiece of the show and the star of the show. And to Ricky's credit, he was the one who I guess had read about or heard about this burgeoning thing called podcasts. Yeah. It was at the, the advent of the iPod yeah. and all the other kind of those sort of things. And I guess it was bubbling around and yeah. there weren't many people doing them. And I forget exactly how he transitioned to it, but much like I said before, it didn't take long before you just needed a couple of microphones yeah. and and a, um, and a mixing desk, and you could record this thing. And and off we went, really. And, and I guess we sort of replicated initially the radio show we'd done with Carl, but podcasting gave us more freedom. We could yeah. go into really just sit there with almost no burden to anything really we didn't have to play records we didn't have to mind our language we didn't have to please the station yeah. we didn't have to play commercials we could talk about anything and everything yeah. um the only thing that was slightly harder at that time was i guess it was sort of a little bit before social media so it was harder to interact with the audience yeah, in the way you yeah. could now but aside from that because you had emails for a while we had emails and stuff but it was just it was all a, a little bit yeah, yeah a bit detached and so that now I think that would be something great that you could react yeah. so in, immediately to, to to Twitter and things. But but aside from that, it just it, we just had enormous freedom and um and off we went. And then just I guess perhaps because of the absence of rival podcasts, yeah. we found ourselves in the Guinness Book of World Records. You know, yeah. within a couple of years for the most downloaded podcast. But as I say, I think it's easier to do that when there's three other yeah podcasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but um, the most popular of the three podcasts. That's right. That's right. And so. Uh, and it was a delight and it was and it was a joy to do and um uh, yeah it's well as you know how you know how much fun it, it yeah. can be how, how quickly did you realize that you'd struck gold uh, with carl because I've, I've i had a radio show at xfm before i was doing this podcast and speaking to people there they'd kind of say 
it's not it was it wasn't an act at all. Genuinely, if you were if you're having a bad day, you, you'd go and have a chat with Carl because totally. he'd say something ludicrous that just and not intentionally, but it'd just pick you up. He'd moan about something and it would bring your day off. You'd just you'd go down well, and see every Carl, other so. sentence. You know, whether it was I remember um, what are, he said once. Um, what are those things in Gremlins called? <laughs> it's, it's Gremlins. <laughs> But um, it just, it was almost like just everything was gold. And I guess initially we, you know, we were there, to, it was essentially supposed to be there for Ricky and I to kind of, uh, you know, banter back and forth. But once you start asking Carl, it would just take you down roads that you just never yeah. anticipated. And the audience very quickly, that was the great perk of being on the radio, is that people would email as you were on air. Yeah. And so, you know, at least you, you just immediately knew people were responding to what Carl was saying. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and so you just knew that that was um you just had to mine that particular yeah. uh, avenue and so you know by the time we transitioned to podcasting Carl's sort of cult had already grown yeah. really yeah and and um we could just explore it more once we got into the podcast realm it's it's still my my favorite podcast moment ever is you attempting to read the en- the entry into Carl's diary where he wakes up turns over and looks at looks at drive and asks like do you know about the nervousness? <laughs> well, I can't. I, I can't remember half of what we said because people so listen to them religiously, and many yeah. people talk about listening to them to go to go to sleep, which I always find odd because the idea of Ricky's shrill laugh <laughs> helping you sleep seems yeah. weird to me. But it's also I don't know. I mean, I think the thing, the one thing we wanted to do on the radio was we wanted it to sound like it was three mates having a conversation in the pub. Yeah, that you're a part and you're part of that, and you can yeah. sit there with us yeah. and have a pint and listen to us bicker and argue and joke and all the rest yeah. of it, and. And I think that was the key to it. And then that, that was what we were able to do on, on podcast too, in the podcast as well. But I think, um, and I think that's what in, people engaged with. And I think people have very sweetly spoken to me in person or emailed me or te- Twitter, tweet, tweeted about how it sometimes has helped them through dark times. Yeah. And they, they've listened to the podcast during depression yeah. or other things, because I think the sort of camaraderie of it and the, and the absurdity at times, but ultimately the sort of good humour of it. You know, we yeah. are friends and we're not, although it may seem like we're bullying Carl, we're not really. <laughs> yeah. And he wins as much as, as we do. I think people just found that a weird comfort yeah. in dark times. And I think that is one of the most exciting responses you can get Completely. for anything you do. The, the warm payoff anytime Carl reluctantly l- laughed yes. was great because it meant it's like... This isn't any kind of, that everyone is in on the joke. We're all it's a kind part of, of this. Yeah. There'll be points where he'd just be going down one route and then just laugh or give up because he's realised, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's gone wrong. Exactly. And that, that it, it added the warmth. It stopped it being a look at the freak we found. Right. Even right, though that right. was a regular, that was a regular element of it. Yeah. Um, that there's a podcast at the moment um, called Brian Gittins and Friends, and um, he's got a guy on there called Dave Edwards who I think is a similar find to Carl. Oh, wow. Completely different kind of character, but I had to talk to Gittins a lot to go, this isn't bullying, is it? Because it is, it's just this weird dude. He's hilarious and wonderful, but he's an odd dude. And then I saw David Edwards' own stand-up show and it's great, so you know it's yes. everyone's in the joke. But it's a similar thing. Um, Gittins is someone I first saw at one of your um, a, a, a work-in-progress gigs for oh, the... Okay, yeah. um, for. Hallow uh, Ladies, I think it was. Okay, right. Um, it was at Bush Hall. Um, right. It was, a, it, was a, it was a very early one. How was it kind of stepping in to, to stand up? Because it feels like a real mic drop. You kind of stepped in, did 
an award-winning, praised, wonderful show, and then went, I'm done with it. I'll see you later. Well, <laughs> I don't know if you know, but I, I, I had done stand-up early on. So yeah. when I first moved to London, uh, in, in my attempts to get into radio, yeah. I also was doing stand-up at the right. same time. Um, and and so, and then I, it was, I never was entirely comfortable doing it because I was doing this sort of persona. Mm. It, it was called Stephen Merchant, but the sort of idea, the joke of it was, the meta joke was that I was sort of playing an arrogant comedian from the West Country who right. thought he was the bee's knees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would always come on and talk about how I was a big shot in Bristol and everyone loved me down there. Yeah. And just because you in Manchester have never heard of me, you should. And that I should have got more applause when I came on. In fact, I'm going to come off and come back on again. Yeah, I need yeah, a bit yeah. of round of applause. And, and I would promise this act that never arrived. I'd keep on saying, <laughs> I got dynamite material, it's killer. Yeah. I'm going to do something about the Channel Tunnel, it's going to crush. But before I do that, there's a guy talking about me in the toilet before I came on. He's one of the other comedians. Fuck him. You know, and so it was sort of, and I would sort of, and, and it went best when, when people dialed into it, the more I failed to get to the act and yeah. the more annoyed I got with the audience, the funnier it became. And it would end with me sort of saying, this has gone terribly. Um, I'm not going to discuss it with anyone. Neither are you. I don't want you telling anyone about tonight's gig. I'm going to walk off. I want a round of applause. And then I would storm off ideally into the wings pause and then have to come back on awkwardly and go you can't get out that way i'm gonna have to walk through the audience this and just try and humiliate myself as much as possible and when the audience went for it it was so exciting it was so much fun yeah it was you know it was playing with the whole idea of stand-up it was very kind of meta in that way and i just loved it but more often than not it did not go over because they just didn't tune into what i was up to and then i didn't have an act yeah right that was the act and then i would promise this act and they'd be like do the act and i never had an act and so I just, it was, it was as, it went as good as it went badly. And it was just the emotional exhaustion of that was too much. It's, and so I kind of just, I had to step away from it because I was like, this is tough. You it's know? exactly what Brian Gittins right. goes through there with you that, are. that character. You kind of talk to him and he's, he's always on the verge of quitting stand up, but it's yeah. because he's written a character that the per, if he's nailed it, it's, it's really awkward and strange. And everyone's amazed, but it's, he's meant to be bad. So it's that, yeah, right. it's a horrible... And it's funny, actually, because you see it, you see variations on that, actually, quite a lot. And I think often it is... I mean, you know, David Earl, who does Brian Gittins, yeah. does it exceptionally well. But there are other people that sort of... It's, it's often something you do early on because you want to react against all the stand-up you've seen and you're yeah. sort of playing with it. But it can but be a safety it, net as well. Well, it can, well it, it's both a safety net because you're not being you. Yeah. But also it does bring with it limitations because yeah. you, you ultimately, you kind of work yourself into a corner in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when I decided to go back to stand-up, I realized I had to throw that away and I had to go out as myself yeah. and be me. And so although I had stand-up experience, I didn't have stand-up experience as myself, if you like. Yeah, yeah. But also I had this complication that some people knew who I was, but they didn't know me as a stand-up. And so they didn't know quite what to expect. And so in yeah. a way I had to define myself on yeah. stage as a stand-up person yeah. um and so it was i should have did a lot of time just going back to the pubs and clubs and just kind of getting back in the groove of it and figuring out uh just just how to express myself yeah. as coherently as 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 i could really. it's tough right because when you're coming up normally you have that period where you're not you're not very good but that's right. There's but four you're or five doing it in the, in the darkness. Room, no so one it doesn't knows. matter. That's Whereas right. you're kind of having to start again, but already a Stephen Mert, already going to yeah. have expectation and a crowd. And also, it's hard to know 
what's good if you've got a crowd who are already on your side? It was exactly like when Tiger Woods changed his golf swing. <laughs> yeah, and with the full yeah. glare of, every, of the world watching, he yeah. had to change his golf swing. It made him a bit crap for a while. It was exactly like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's there the perfect analogy. So, so how did you find it, though, when it, it all kind of came together? And, and, uh, it was and, great. And, and I well. actually, I'm, ta- I'm sort of playing around with it at the moment again and going, thinking about going back to do it again. But I think the difficulty was I had got comfortable with not doing stand-up. And yeah. so I'd forgotten how grueling it was. And I know this podcast is ultimately going to seem like me just complaining about incredibly privileged <laughs> positions. But much like working in Natchez, Mississippi, yeah. I was doing the stand-up tour like, oh, God, I'm stuck in a hotel room again. Yeah. Oh, I'm on the M4. This is exhausting. So, <clears throat> I, you know, again, I found it a bit hard work. Um, but then I was listening to a, an interview with Bruce Springsteen about how, you know, he... He talks about how when every time you go out, you have to approach it like for the audience, it's the first time they've ever seen you on stage. Yeah. It may be the first stand-up gig they've ever gone to, in his case, music gig. You're going to give them a hell of a show. And so yeah. once I realized that, you know, actually the boss, who is a far more experienced and talented and superstar performer than me, has still got that amazing work ethic and that respect for the crowd, I was yeah. like, shut up, Merchant, and do your, do your work. You I know? genuinely think there's no one better to take influence from in in any industry than Springsteen. He, I think he's honestly he is a, the guiding light of everything. He yeah. he's like people talk about what would Jesus do? What would the boss into do? TV into in, everything. anything you do it always Springsteen's outlook always translates. His autobiography whether you're a Bruce fan or not, you know, yes all right there's a little bit perhaps too much about, you know, his childhood, but once you get to the meat and potatoes of just the graft of yeah. of learning your craft and of becoming a performer and the thing he talks about just is about the hard work and the graft of it and yeah. that you know it's it's always hard work it's hard work once you're a superstar it's still yeah. hard work yeah. and it's there's something very admirable about that and actually funny enough i feel like in the last few years i've there were occasions in the past where i would sort of wing it up yeah. with certain things and and in recent years i i don't wing it i really try and do the work i put the time in whether i'm going to go on a talk show i i do the work beforehand you know yeah. or whatever it's the simplest things that seem like you could just go by the seat of your pants i'm like no i better do the work it's yeah. what the boss would do completely i love that and it's again it's the right outlook and attitude to have because it makes it it's going to make it all the more rewarding for you as well if you know right. that you've gone right i'm going to try really hard at this rather than eh, yeah we'll see how it goes that's right it, it'll land yeah so so i'm i'm it's it's testament that we're we're an hour in i'll start to wrap things up soon i'm not going to I'd take your whole day but it's, t- it's testament that we're an hour in and we haven't even touched upon the at the office yet so let's kind of start to wrap things up by talking about that a bit how was it when that kind of came about and and just or no it, it's hard to say it, it just clicked because there was a lot of people who didn't realize didn't understand what it was but when it did click how was that for you guys because it's it's similar to podcasting in that it's a specific g- genre that yeah, there'd been your spinal taps and stuff like that, but the mockumentary wasn't a thing on TV in particular, and it wasn't a British thing in particular. So how was it to take a risk on something that seems a bit odd and then have it, it pay off so so ridiculously? Well, I think there's something I've realised when I talked about The Office lately, which is that it's easy <clears throat> to sort of mythologise it in your own head. Yeah. <clears throat> Pardon me, like everything was... Um, uh, part of a master plan right yeah, yeah when yeah. in actual fact it 
you know, it was really much more like, you know, the old analogy of you put the frog in the pan of water and you slowly turn up the heat. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, it, and, yeah. you know, before you know it, it's boiling yeah, alive. Yeah. And, and, you know, we didn't just jump into the pan of hot water. It was a slow boil. Yeah. You know, it begun as a training exercise that I was working at the BBC and I called Ricky in and he, you know, uh, had some observations about this character and we put him on there. And then that, uh, I was working at the BBC and I got to show that to some people and then they let us make a pilot and then we, you know, and so it was a yeah. slow, relatively slow evolution. Um, but also along the way, we were nobodies. Like you were talking about when you first start in stand-up, you can kind of do it and learn your craft in the yeah. darkness. There were no expectations. It was very low budget. The BBC were not spending a great deal of money on it. They they didn't have great expectations or great hopes. Um, it was set in one office. It was, you know, contained. It wasn't, you didn't have to have trucks driving yeah. to country mansions. Um, it, it didn't need big star actors. It was shot documentary style. So how much could we screw it up if it looked yeah. kind of shitty around <laughs> the edges? How so much what? How risk are we taking? Yeah. And so, you know, so, so much of it was just sort of, initially at least was kind of happy accident you know we'd i'd done this training exercise at the bbc i had this camera team for a day everyone on my training course was supposed to do a real mini documentary i wanted to do a fake one and so the right. style of the documentary just came about from that yeah. we then later used the mockumentary format and we sort of expanded on it but it wasn't this grand idea about yeah. let's use the mockumentary format for it, it was just sort of circumstance you know time to feel. I've got we, we, th- i realized on the day it was if i turned the camera on ricky and asked him a bunch of questions and he improvised in character i could get an extra five minutes of material in the form of talking heads that i could yeah. splice through and make the whole thing longer yeah. so it was like just do that and then that became a great device in the show but it wasn't again it wasn't a careful analysis of documentaries and it just happened that the documentary mockumentary format or i should say the documentary uh, former at the time was really big on the TV, so it was yeah. driving school, and there were all these other things. Of course, yeah, about yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of that were sort of popular documentary people becoming a superstar, exactly. And so it t- chimed with that, and so as we started to develop it, it, you know, we could draw influence from that. Yeah, um, but it wasn't this grand attempt to be satirical or anything. It was really, I think, just we wanted to be as authentic as we could be about uh, office life, yeah. the office life Ricky experience and the I experience at the BBC and elsewhere. We just wanted to just we just literally would sit and think about all the different kinds of people we'd insert, we'd encountered and the kind of things we'd experienced and put them in the show. And so the fact that it sort of then caught fire and people responded to it was again, completely out of our control. You know, there's no way you could have anticipated that it would chime in that way. I think what, what we could take credit for is that we were very, we were very scrupulous about what it shouldn't be. And we, and we, and we didn't want it to be, kind of crazy and full of antics and full of yeah. sitcominess. We wanted it to feel truthful. We wanted people to think it might be a real documentary. And yeah. in fact, after the first episode aired, I was on a train, obviously no one knew who I was. And I was on a train uh, with these opposite, these two women. And one of them said to the other one, did you see that documentary last night on BBC two about an office? It was hilarious. And the woman next to her said, Oh no, I don't think that was a documentary. I think that was a sitcom. And the first woman went, oh, well, then it was terrible. It wasn't funny. That's amazing. And she changed her opinion 
<laughs> once she realised she'd yeah. watched a sitcom and not a real documentary. And, and there was a lot of opinion I that was similar that. to that as the show began to evolve uh, or, or to find an audience. But I think what just what happened is I just think... Oh, we wanted we, to laugh at you, not with you. Right, we don't like that's the fact it. that we're we laughing like, with you. Exactly. We were laughing at you. No, 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 we're in on it. Oh, forget it then. Exactly. It's so bizarre. <laughs> but I think, again, because we were so scrupulous about trying to make it feel authentic uh, about the life experience we'd had in offices, I, I guess that's the thing that chimed with people. Yeah. And so... So again, you know, it's easy to kind of to portray it like we were the, you know, like it was our great master plan. Yeah. But I think just a lot of happy accidents and then just stumbling across, not stumbling across, there was a casting director who did an amazing job, but, you know, just just finding these brilliant talents like yeah. Martin Freeman and Mackenzie Crook who people just weren't familiar with and yeah. they were just crazily talented as their subsequent careers have proven. Yeah. Just, you know, we were just, just all the alchemy of it came together. And, yeah. You know, so, but, uh, uh, I mean, uh, not to argue against your genius in it, um, <laughs> but I once control had been taken of the wheel, I do still think that the the the, the, the heart in the Tim and Dawn story and, and, and the heart in, in, in Brent as well towards mm. the, the end is some of the best tr- drama that the BBC has ever produced because it is comedy and it is it has been so long of mocking and laughing, but it had that... I guess it was the reality heart of it because you've the mockumentary format allows you to think of these characters as real. Yes, because but it's a comedy, so to then have drama, you don't generally have dramas where you are allowed to think the characters are real. You always have that slight distance of it's a fictional story. Whereas because you kind of watch this under the guise of a real story, it, it just meant that heart. Hit for all the more I feel. And well, I think it was. It was. You know, I mean, I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't trying to diminish our involvement in it. You know, we did. <laughs> I think we did make good decisions, and I think we yeah. did have um, some good taste when we yeah. made that show. And I think, but you know, Ricky and I were always fans of sort of romantic comedies, whether yeah. it's The Apartment. In my case, I always loved um, Northern Exposure and yeah. the Will They Won't yeah, They relationship yeah, yeah. at the core of that. I loved Friends with the Ross yeah. and Rachel relationship. I loved, you know, that kind of romantic tension. Yeah. I've always enjoyed that in, in things, in, in TV, Moonlighting. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it was just, I just thought that was, to me, that was always something I was really pushing for. Yeah. And I think Ricky initially was a little bit kind of nervous about whether that would work, but, you know, he kind of embraced it as well. And I think we just realised, well, we can do a rom-com element, but it's going to be influenced by a documentary team. If you're secretly in love with a woman you work for and there's cameras constantly watching you, yeah. you have to be pretty subtle yeah. about how you're going to operate yeah, your, yeah, this yeah, romance. Yeah, 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 and yeah. so it just brought with it all this amazing tension because we used to talk about it like, um, it's like a like a Jane Austen, you know, where there were in, in Jane Austen uh, novels or in those kind of Victorian novels, there is etiquette and society has all these rules that mean you can't just go and have a bonk. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because like you'd be thrown out of society. Yeah. And so there's this kind of, there's this sort of pent up sexual tension in those movies yeah. and in those books that's really kind of exhilarating because when will the lovers finally consummate it? Yeah. They have to get married before they can do it, right? And so, and so in the office, it was kind of the same because there's this camera, which is kind of society yeah. endlessly scrutinizing you. And so suddenly what in a, in a regular rom-com would be a kiss or sex, now just like a brush of their arms against one another has that same electricity yeah. because 
they're under this radar, sorry, this microscope the whole time. And so just the discovery of things like that as you're working on it and writing on it kind of became exhilarating and, and it worked. And so, you know, we discovered all these delicious sort of, um, these delicious kind of, and, and I think to me the culmination of that, and this is going to sound so pretentious, but the kind of fusion of form and content, yeah. it's going back to my film studies days, yeah, yeah, yeah. was that moment when, Tim declares his love for Dawn and he takes off his microphone to do it. Yeah. And he kind of runs through the office and he takes off his mic and the mic and it just goes to silence. Yeah. And you can't hear what they say to one another. And he comes out and he just clips his microphone back on and says, she said no. And to me, that was just, that was where the documentary style perfectly fused with the story. And you couldn't have done that moment in any other traditional romance because you what, what you know what 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 is preventing you from hearing what they're saying yeah. but in the documentary when you take off that mic it goes silent and and that was the moment where it was like oh we've really cracked something here you know yeah. that we've really used this format to go into drama beyond just the comedy of will david brent saying embarrassing things yeah and that's the beauty there it's finding what makes what makes that medium unique and makes right. the most out of it there's a big backlash in art at time, or there has been over history in, in the more realistic art or painting so photo realistic painting because the argument is often well that's not the point of painting that's the right. point of photos sure just take a photo the point of art is meant to do you can't you couldn't just take a photo of this this thing that yes. we're creating can't be done with a lens and film yes. and that's kind of the, the beauty there of going right we're we're looking at rom-coms, but what is unique? How can we uniquely use our setup right. and our situation to make it? Yeah. But it also it brought items. limitations with it. And I think one of the reasons we ultimately ended the series was that it just, you know, it is also a little bit limiting because, you know, what you have in a traditional form is you can kind of, you can go home with the characters, you can spend time in their private moments and they, in a movie, like in Fight With My Family, you know, people can speak authentically. Yeah. Um, in a way that they never would if they were conscious of being filmed. Yeah. And so all of the joy and creative opportunities it brought, it also brought limitations because it was like you had to sort of mine for the truth of what these people were thinking and doing because they're presenting a version of themselves to the cameras. And we yeah. became very scrupulous about that. And so it brought certain limitations. You know, in, in a way you wanted to go home with Tim and Dawn yeah, and yeah. Brent and you wanted to see them in their real lives, but it would become crazy. Like, why is this that camera crew yeah. in a bedroom Never. with yeah, someone, yeah, yeah, you know, it doesn't yeah. make sense. So, um, you know, it, it did bring with it certain limitations as well. And, uh, and so it, that's why a lot of things I've done subsequently are not in that format yeah. because it, it does have restrictions. So, uh, we spoke earlier of the, of, of, the relinquishing of, of, of control to, to directors now that can be a relieving thing and also can be a tough thing because you don't know the result. How was it relinquishing control to the American office, kind of handing over your, your, your format and versions of your characters and then allowing them to go off? Was that easy to watch, to be involved in, to, to all those things? Well, I, th- 
again, you know, you were talking about being a fan of TV movies, as was I from a young age. I, yeah. I've always been a fan, and I've sort of been a fan of the history of the of, yeah. this, of that stuff as well. And I, and it occurred to me that there were very few successful adaptations of British Completely. shows, even though they've tried them. Yeah. I think the last really successful one was probably um, Steptoe and Son, that yeah. became a show called Sanford and Son in yeah. the States, that ran in the 70s. And of course... Um, there was a show called All in the Family, which was an adaptation of uh, Alf Garnet, Till Death Us yep. Do Part. Yep. But there hadn't been many in the 80s and 90s and 2000s no. that were a successful transition. And They'd I wondered... the other way around in, uh, in Who's the Boss and that's the right. Upper Hand. <laughs> that's right. But, but not really. It's not sitting uh, on anyone's shelf no, as, a, sure. as a great triumph. <laughs> but I, re- I, I was kind of wondering to myself, why had they not been successful? And I looked at some of the failed attempts and it seemed to me that one of the problems was the original... British program makers had gone to the States and tried to replicate it themselves. And it seemed to me that ultimately Ricky and I didn't know enough about the nuance of American office life. We've all watched a thousand American movies and TVs. We we think we know American culture, but actually we don't really like there's just so many things that that are unique sort of British office life that don't quite translate. Even Gareth being in the Territorial Army, there yeah. isn't a Territorial yeah, Army. of course. So, you know, how do those... Although I mentioned I went to a pub quiz in Natchez, Mississippi, there aren't... The tradition of the kind of pub quiz and the, even the work outing yeah. to a quiz is not really a thing. And and so all these little things that, that seem like they would have obvious parallels in the States um, don't are not as easy yeah. as you think. And so it just seemed to us that it was important to kind of seed control and find someone that could do an adaptation do this great cover version of our version yeah, and not with us interfering, not with us trying to kind of replicate what we'd done because we just felt like that would lead them astray. And I think, you know, even though we found Greg Daniels, who turned out to be the perfect choice, you know, even he initially was a little bit kind of straight-jacketed, feeling like he had to uh, replicate what we had yeah. done. And actually, I think by the time he threw off those shackles and just by the second season of the American version just ran and did his own thing. That's when that show became its own beast and on off it went. And to me then it was like the one thing that Ricky and I could never do with the office was enjoy it as viewers, yeah, right? Cause you're yeah. just, you're, you were too in it. Yeah. And suddenly we had all these characters that seemed familiar and that we liked and this world and this awkward kind of sense of comedy and this dynamic and this romance, but we weren't involved. And so we would just watch these episodes like fans able to enjoy the show like a fan. Uh, And, you know, to me, it sort of, it seems pointless to try and compare the two. And people say, I I love the British, I hate the American or vice versa. They're just different things. And I think there's much to enjoy in both. Well, that was it. The problem I had was I started the first series. I couldn't watch it because it was just trying to, it felt like it was just trying to remake the British, which was, was, I already loved. And it was years and years later that, my, my brother had the box. I started season two, and absolutely adored it. It's absolutely hilarious stuff in yeah. season two and, and onwards. I mean, it really Corell, I think, really finds his groove in that character. They Completely. soften the edges a little bit, uh, and which works perfectly for him. Yeah. And just everyone is is firing on all cylinders. Yeah. The, the, the romance is great. They had more time so they could explore all those background characters more fully. Yeah, um, completely. It, it's, it, it's a masterful piece of work at times. Yeah. It, it really, it's excellent. And that must be amazing. It's so nice to hear that you could enjoy it as a fan. Because again, you yeah. never know if there's going to be some uh, preciousness or a, a discomfort, but it is great. As I said, I was one of them for ages. It was like, no, I, I only like the British one. And then went, oh no, the American one's amazing. So it's nice yeah. that you got to... Here's our creation, but now I get to sit back. It's almost like, um, 
I don't know. It's like, you know, you can go into a shop and, and have a T-shirt made with a design of your choice. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like that. It's like, yeah. here are all the elements. Kindly send back a TV yeah. programme with them all featured, please. 100%. I've got, I've got a podcast kind of network and I've got a load of different podcasts on there and I get a, a, a lot of love for putting it all together. But they're all just podcasts I want to listen to. Right. It's genuinely that. It's like I've set these people up and set them on their way. Now I listen to all of them each week. It's selfishness, really. It's to give myself that content. Like, yeah. I'm the mastermind that created this this wonderful That's thing right. for, for, for my own enjoyment. Well, it's that thing about also, you know, when you're writing stuff, it's kind of, to me, it's sort of, well, what do I want to see? Yeah. What What is missing? Or in the case of Fight With My Family, it's sort of, this is a fascinating story. Yeah. You know, how can I kind of, how can I express the the sort of pleasure I had in discovering this story and finding it out? Yeah. And finding out what happened next. And, and, you know, uh, and sort of expressing that mm-hmm. has been, was a real, was a it's real an interesting one because I really think that stories get spread further when they're, when dramatizations are made of them. Documentaries are wonderful. It's why I've always been confused as to why there's never been a great film about the LA riots. It's this iconic time in history and there's amazing documentaries, but never a great dramatizations as, and so it's great to have things like Fire My Family that go, right, there is a good documentary out of all this, but this will, it allows you to lose yourself in it more. Right. You're not having to be f- forced into the, the realities or anything else. It's going, right, I can just let it wash over me. That's right. And I, and I hope, I mean, I, I don't know, you may be a hard-hearted soul, but I think some of the audiences we've shown it to have really got little kind of misty-eyed by I, the end. I welled up two or three times. And I love that. I, know, I, 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 I wondered, because part of it, I, I said I'd know... Soraya and Soraya. It's confusing. Yes, They've got the yes. same name. I've known them a little bit to chat over the years. So those emotional moments were genuine. I was like... Yes, right. But yeah, I genuinely, I welled up and I had on the on the way in on, on the screen and I chatted with a, a John Bradley who I've had on the podcast. He's in, in Game of Thrones, a, a lovely guy. I had planned to say goodbye at the end, but because I was a bit teary, I just made a quick exit because I, like, I don't want to have this embarrassing kind of... But it's amazing. I did went, you enjoy it? I <laughs> used to do film reviewing for Venue Magazine in Bristol. It was a Bristol kind of what's on magazine. And they used to send me to films that a lot of the other more seasoned film reviewers didn't want to see. Yeah. And <clears throat> which occasionally meant I saw some treats because no yeah. one knew what they were, one of which was Swingers, which wow, really wow. motivated me to do stuff and to have worked yeah. with Vince Vaughn now is a great privilege. Amazing. But one of the movies they sent me to see they didn't think they were interested in was The Bridges of Madison County right with um Meryl Streep and and Clint Eastwood as two middle-aged people who have a kind of brief summer romance yeah and I swear to god by the end of that film I was in such tears I had to there were all these highly hardened cynical film critics in the room and I just kind of had to sit as the credits were on and be like yeah I'll meet you in the lobby I just want to see who the best boy is because I didn't want (laughs) to go out and it's funny because Ricky had seen it as well and he'd been equally moved and that was a huge influence on The Office yeah because there's a very beautiful moment at the end of Bridges of Madison County where um, Meryl Streep has to decide whether she'll stay with her husband, who's a perfectly good guy, or or get out of her car and get into Clint Eastwood's car and drive off with him into yeah. another romantic life and abandon essentially her family and her kids. And it's beautifully orchestrated. And it ends with she's in one car, Clint is in another car. They happen to find themselves next to each other at these traffic lights. And they're, and they're at red. Yeah. And she knows this is the moment she could literally get out and get out of one car and into the other because they're there at the red light. But we, everyone knows when that light turns green, that moment is gone. Yeah. And you see her hand on the, uh, on, the, on the door handle and you see her looking at her husband. You see her looking at Clint kind of subtly. 
and it's very small moment and it's but it feels huge it yeah. feels like rocky in the ring it's a huge yeah. moment and in the end she spoiler alert switch off now if you don't want to know she chooses not to go and she stays with her yeah. husband and the lights change and clint drives off and she drives off and that's the end and it's absolutely beautifully orchestrated and you know people forget clint eastwood is who directed as well is a master when he's yeah. on form and and that kind of as the kind of as it was a big influence on the on the ending of the office and, the, yeah. and trying to make this little small moment of kind of will she won't she stay for tim or will she yeah. go off with her husband yeah. and using the paints and unwrapping the paints as a sort of version yeah. of that um but as I said, I was very emotional by the end of Richard Madison County, and I hoped, we certainly hoped that, that you'd be teary by the end of The Office Christmas yeah. specials, and similarly with this film. And the greatest compliment I've ever had about The Office was a woman stopped me in the street, and she said, I work for the British Ambulance Service. And there's these, there's these ambulance drivers and ambulance guys who, on a weekly basis, have to pick up seriously injured or dead people you know, and put them in an ambulance and they have to source, she basically said they have to scrape them off the street mm-hmm. sometimes. And it's one of the toughest jobs anyone does. And those guys take it in their stride. But she said she was working there and it was Christmas Eve or, or Boxing Day or whatever, whenever the office specials aired. Yeah. And these tough bastards who can watch injured people being lifted yeah. into an ambulance were in tears at the end of the office. And I, I was like, it. wow, that's the greatest compliment I've yeah. ever been given. That's beautiful. Well, I'll, <laughs> I'll wrap things up there. I'll just quickly ask you, oh, oh, what's ahead? Because the, 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 the directing seems to be going great. The drama acting, comedy acting and stand-up are said. So what's kind of the focus going forward or do you not? Do you, you know not what? Know? I would love to make another film. And as you've seen from this collection of DVDs here, I have such an eclectic taste yeah. and I genuinely am a bit un- overwhelmed by what, where to go next, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fighting With My Family felt like it was in my wheelhouse. There was humour, there was drama, there was comedy. It was a relatively small British story. I understood it. Yeah. And it, now I feel like, where do I go now? What do yeah. I do? I sort of, I feel a little bit intimidated. Not yeah. because everyone's just writing a blank check for me, but just, you know, that was two or three years of my life. You know, what yeah. am I going to commit and my time to? the story was to? there, I guess. The story, the story was, was there. there it go, was ready made. And The Rock had rung you to us. The Rock, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> So I, 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 cause I'd love to do a thriller. I'd love to do a, um, you know, I'd love to do a action thing. I'd yeah. love to do a small, weird little art movie. I just, I just honestly, I don't know. So any ideas, please welcome. <laughs> they're welcome. Please tweet me with ideas of what films Perfect. I should make. Well, that's wonderful. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, man. There we go. That was Stephen Merchant. Thank you for listening and enjoying. Yeah, it's interesting that because that was the first one. Hang on, is that the first one this year? No, Mark Miller was another one. That's the first one that I've released this year that wasn't part of a press junket. And I think you'll agree the press junkets can go either way. In general, they're all, all really good. Some are really, really good. Like I felt the conversation I had with Eddie Marston, we just really clicked. And Richard E. Grant is one that's gone down in a bit of a legendary manner. But this is one of two this year that I've just gone to the person's house. I, I said, Mark Miller, I popped up to visit him. Um, oh, no. Uh, uh, what am I talking about? Last week's... Oh, well, Lolly had a, had a faux pas. I wasn't part of a press junket. But, yeah. 
Anyway, I don't know where I was going with that. Thank you for tuning in. As said, head over to to patreon.com slash pip if you want the uh, extra content, extra podcasts, extra spoken word pieces, and uh, the previews of upcoming episodes. And that's about that, I think. I don't think I've got that much more to, t- to tell you. Oh, I should mention Pod Bible. Um, it's going down a treat. If you're a fan of podcasts, check the Pod Bible out. It's 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 a magazine recommending podcasts, interviewing people. It's the first issue is out now online. It's got interviews with Adam Buxton, with Craig Parkinson, and loads of great people. So yeah, head over and check that out at podbiblemag.com or just podbible on all your social medias. There's tons of stuff on the social media that's constantly updating and constant recommendations and engagement and all that kind of thing. So yeah, go and give that a look. I mean, I know I know that a lot of you don't listen to the outros because I, I don't on some podcasts. So I will... I did this trick a while back. I think it was the Joel Egerton episode. I'm going to get Buddy Peace again to cut that little pod Bible bit and put it in the in the beginning, in the intro. So, so you will have already heard that. And kind of, you've already heard this because I did it in a previous episode. Yet, you've probably fallen for it again. Do you know what I mean? You heard that in the intro. And again, I have mugged you off. I'm not going to make a habit of this. This is probably the only two times I'm going to do it. I don't plan it. But you've mugged yourselves off, really, because I just did that. You heard that at the beginning. I'm, I'm, I'm walking around my house now. I'm in my bathroom. I've just seen that um, a, a light switch in my landing is a bit bit dirty. So I've gone in the bathroom to get a, a scrubber. Um, I've run it under the tap. and I'm going to give it a little clean as we talk. So, you know, I'm paid for these podcasts. So I'm, I'm making money whilst doing general house maintenance so um suck it guys oh i should i'm gonna tease you with a suck it made me think of james acast this is gonna be a long outro now guys strap yourselves in i've got chatty um suck it made me think of james acaster on um on taskmaster um me and james have been discussing a very special episode of the Distraction Pieces podcast that we're going to do. And we've told Ed Gamble he's good. Or no, we've decided Ed's, Ed Gamble is going to be in it. We've not told him yet. A, a quick update. That light switch is now very clean. Um, yeah, we've not told Ed he's going to be in it. But I'm going to have Ed Gamble and James Acaster on for a new format that will probably be a one-off. But I reckon it's going to be more popular and make more more waves than the drunk cast and you know the drunk cast spawned a lot of copycats and all things like that we were the kind of originators i don't know i guess the fight companions of rogans were kind of before that i know they were primarily meant to be about fights but they did have a drink and stuff on there but i don't know i think that we really invented the uh the drunk cast but there we go and me and james have got a new idea that's going to lure Ed in as well, and he doesn't even know, but it's going to be amazing. So I don't know when that will happen. It'll be a month or two away, because I've got so many episodes recorded, which you can find out about over at patreon.com slash Pip. I've been Scroobius Pip. Thank you, and good night.